You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So let's begin. It is um, May 14th, 2020. This is Meditation and Attachment, deepening your practice and I had intended to alternate between metta practice and uh, vipassana practice, but for the last few weeks I've been focusing mainly on vipassana practice, so I thought we would uh, shift from that and and, uh, focus on metta practice. Uh, And then uh, looking back at uh, which uh, practices we've covered, uh, the last one we did was metta for self. And so I thought that we would uh, focus on metta for close people. I know I talk about uh, Dunbar numbers and and how to organize that, Um, but uh, close means inner circle, people that you tell everything to. And one of the things that's different about working with close people is that because the relationships are often complicated, we can view them through a lot of different mind states. in a way of thinking about it, we develop a sense of who we are, and uh, we do that through a working model, and then that working model arises and activates um, memory gists, and those gists uh, play out in the different um, sense gates and in that process creates this experience of self and other. And part of that construction of the working model includes the mind states which we uh, typically view the person through. This is also true of ourselves. We talked about that in terms of the sense of self arising and if you're used to uh, looking at the sense uh, of self through afflictive mind states and the sense of self arises and and, and uh, an afflictive mind state arises through which you view that sense of self. Then you can develop an aversion to the experience of your own self because what arises then is this afflictive mind state that accompanies the activation of self. So when we talk about being able to hold metta mind for close people, we're also working in this uh, area the different mind states that arise when we think of the people um, that we are close to. In the traditional way of practicing uh, metta, close people is often called the categories of uh, mentors and benefactors. So teachers, mentors, or benefactors. People that are easily revered But we live in the West where uh, teachers, mentors, and benefactors are not necessarily revered, or at least not in the way that we would be simply able to to, um, go into a a metamind with them. And and so uh, I tend to teach that as the the, uh, easy category. Easy people are the people that when you think of them, the mind state of loving kindness comes with them typically simple relationships, 
So often when we're engaging and working with a, a, an easy person, we're not engaged with working with somebody who's in our inner circle. And using the Dunbar uh, numbers as a way of um, structuring that, a close person is somebody that you tell everything to, that you don't withhold anything from. Um, we don't mean uh, by that that you uh, uh, every despicable thing you think that you've ever done is uh, in uh, communicated in some way. Um, when we say that you're you're sharing uh, your experience uh, with them in an unfiltered way, your experience you're describing your experience of the present moment as it's happening in a way that's complete. Um, so, uh, parsing it in this way, A's and B's would be the, the designations in the Dunbar system. So, A relationship, somebody that you see and take care of on a daily or every other day basis. B relationships, where you take care of them on a weekly or every other week basis. Those are minimums, of course. Um, and that you tell everything to. So, when you... Uh, Think of your own life and think of the relationships that you have. How many of those people are there? And then that would be the category that we are focusing on. These people that we bring um, the closest to us, who know about us. Um, from the attachment lens, of course, these are people that are meant to be encouraging you of your solo exploration. So there are also people that you can come and go from, not necessarily people that you uh, can't uh, uh, explore without. The main difference between A and B relationships is that in A relationships, the needs of the relationship are more important than the solo explorations. And so this is indeed a, a very uh, substantial commitment to somebody. Not everybody likes to have a, an A relationship, um, and so they do with Bs, which is totally fine. Uh, some people don't tell everything to anyone, and so they don't have As or Bs. Um, and so uh, in that case, with this category, you wouldn't have anyone to work with. So you might consider uh, instead uh, practicing with yourself. Did you have a question, Marshall? No. Oh, sorry. For some reason, you beeped. I'll, turn, I'll mute it. If you do have a question about any of this, just either raise your hand or send, send a chat. I can fit it in. One of the things to understand about the way that we perceive everything is that we take the raw sensing experience as it arises and then we create a, a conceptual reality out of it. So we are taking the data in from the people that we are close to and then creating these experiences of them. So that we also have um, not necessarily an accurate picture of them, but we have uh, as a picture of them, what they mean to us. And so it's important to still be engaging in this dialogue with them about 
what it is that the experiences that you're sharing together mean. And if you can incline your mind away from anger toward kindness for them, it's easier to be in dialogue even in situations that become difficult. Often with people that you're close to and that you live together with, uh, this may also be ac uh, accentuated, let's say, by the uh, pandemic and the current restrictions that we have. Um, and what it is that you need from them and want from them and what it is that they have the, the time, energy and resources then to give you. And how do you balance that? Often in close relationships, we need to negotiate the way that we're going to be with each other in order for that to happen. Um, the early attachment conditioning, of course, affects the way that you, you uh, hold the working model of yourself and the later attachment uh, conditioning that happens when you're able to remember uh, your uh, autobiography and also have some agency in choosing the people that you engage with creates this capacity for conflict resolution, which is another thing that we're really talking about here in close relationships. How do you negotiate conflict between the two parties in the relationship? Uh, particularly uh, in, in home environments where you have a, a larger family than just the two of you, how does, do all of those relationships get negotiated? And can you negotiate them in a good faith manner so that the conflicts between you are, are resolved in a way that feels like a win-win for each of the peop people involved so that the conflicts actually can settle. One of the things that happens in relationships where the conflicts aren't adequately negotiated is that they keep coming up again and again. And they come up and there's a disappointment that follows them coming up again that they haven't been resolvable. And this is one of the things that really can corrode a relationship, the constant disappointment that the conflicts cannot be resolved. And so one of the things that needs to happen here is that you need to continue to negotiate a resolution until both parties feel that that's a good resolution and that they're willing to keep it. Because if you don't do that, if one of the parties is afraid of being abandoned, they'll often capitulate, but then find later that they're unable to maintain the agreement that's been made. And then it'll come up again. So uh, how do you then get to this space where that anger doesn't arise, uh, that uh, prevents these things from happening? And that, that's why we would then practice uh, metta, which inclines the mind toward kindness for them and it creates the potential for the other uh, Brahma-viharas to activate compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, all of them together. The particular piece of metta, though, uh, loving-kindness is often the translation. I like to think of it as an, a, a kind of friendly, open-hearted curiosity. Can you maintain your curiosity about the other person and that the way that they're responding uh, in the present moment without getting so identified with a sense of self that that it becomes uh, uh, an actual conflict. Um, do you feel the sense of self arise and then you need to defend it uh, 
because of the way that they're responding rather than being able to maintain that uh, that open-hearted curiosity about why the interaction between you is causing them to act in the way that they're acting or in reverse how it's causing you to respond uh, I teach metajana which means that the the purpose of it is to of the practice is also to develop high concentration states and jhana states jhana is a word that really just translates into a high concentration state and jhana states are characterized by five qualities one is that you place your attention on the object and then sustain awareness of it and then what happens is that the the body mind gets engaged in the object of meditation or enraptured by it and then as the mind is engaged uh, in the object a blissfulness arises in the body which is pleasant and then then the mind becomes one pointed the difference between a metta jhana style of practice and a a, a, a wet metta i guess we call the concentration style of dry metta and the the metta that's intended to invoke positive emotional states in the body is that the uh, bliss comes from um, generating it through uh, thinking processes in uh, the wet metta and it comes from high concentration states in the dry uh, way of practicing when you think of somebody and uh, they're close to you you may have a lot of different mind states that arise that are similar in, in um, a feeling to metta mind for instance uh, love is different from this or an erotic uh, experience of them a desire for them all of these things are different than the metta mind and so what's also challenging about working with close people is that it's easy to get pulled into a different mind state than than metta mind we would call those other mind states as having a certain amount of heat that can be added if you're erotically interested in an a or a b um, that has a heat to it a heat of desire if you uh, love them that also has a tendency to have a little bit of energy into it that's different than the meta mind um, sometimes uh, there's a kind of emotional uh, regulating connection that you have with somebody that if you are separated from them there's a kind of withdrawal from that or a, a sense of depersonalization so that there's a craving for the connection which is also not meta mind and so uh, one of the ways to uh, um, work with this is to think of the easy person that doesn't have all of those other mind states associated with them cause the metta mind to arise there and then switch to the close person and then if you notice that the mind state drifts into a mind state other than metta mind come back into the easy person reestablish it and then come back to the close person the main reason that we want to be really careful about which mind state we're uh, holding when we do this practice is so that 
the the that open-hearted kind curiosity becomes embedded in the working model of the person so that each time we think of them that um, that quality is available to us to work with when we think of them it may even become uh, one of the more dominant uh, thoughts that you have with them or mind states that arise when you think of them so that you can easily find that space while you're with them and engaged with them. In this process of, of being open and, and sharing uh, your complete experience of the present moment with them, if you're engaging with somebody who's kind in the reception of the experiences that you're having, even the difficult ones, even the painful ones, um, it's much easier to do that because it, it uh, prevents the fearfulness around abandonment arising. And then you want to be able to develop that skill for them so that they feel that sense of, of uh, safety and openness when they uh, come to you and want to begin to present that uh, complexity of experience. The, the reward of, for doing this, of course, is that you have this very intimate understanding, this very intimate connection with another human being. Um, and if you're both coming at it from a place of uh, kindness, um, it feels very uh, safe, which is the foundation, really, of secure uh, collaborative relationships. So really a tremendous capacity to hold in a kind way this uh, open-hearted curiosity about the other person and just allowing them to be uh, the way that they are without needing them to be different than they are. Um, there's something so uh, uh, fundamentally meaningful about somebody being open to you the way that you are and curious about that without really needing you to be different or to meet their, their model of how you should be, um, that if you can find that and nurture those kinds of relationships, it's something of extraordinary value and really should be uh, treated in that way. It's unusual to find that uh, sense of security, really, in, in uh, relationships with other people. Um, we are uh, pack animals, I like to say. Sometimes people use the word herd animals, or particularly now in the pandemic, they're talking about herd immunity, but really it's pack immunity because we're uh, not uh, prey, we're predators. Uh, and predators go in packs and prey go in herds. <laughs> you may have looked at the state of the world and, and uh, mapped onto it the uh, the migration patterns of the human species and noticed the, the wreckage that follows us wherever we go. Um, this is not so different. Um, so in developing jhana, we place and sustain awareness of the mind state, that's the object of meditation, uh, allow the mind to become engaged in that. Um, PT is an energy that arises in the body. So uh, what's interesting about the exploration of metta in this way is how do you know what mind state is present? And this is true of all mind states. How do you investigate what a mind state feels like? Do you know when 
you're angry and the mind is angry so that everything that you experience is infused with a quality of anger or if the mind is fearful or or sad or joyful do you notice how the mind state affects the way that uh, conceptual reality is created so you have the object that can be sensed the capacity to sense it and when there's contact a consciousness of that sensing experience arises which awareness knows it's evaluated for pleasant unpleasant or neutral uh, or I like to say needs urgent attention doesn't matter really and pleasant if there's time mm -hmm. and then it's compared to the perceptual database and if there's a close enough match to the unfixated undifferentiated sensing experience then the meaning of the present moment is associated there it doesn't matter whether you can imagine it happening or whether it's something that you've experienced then that moves from uh, absolute reality into conceptual reality and here's where the mind state figures it's like a filter between the process of conceptual reality becoming uh, of absolute reality becoming uh, conceptual reality and it can totally infuse uh, whatever it is that you're creating we do want to train ourselves so that we have this habit of moving back and forth between ultimate or absolute reality and conceptual reality so that we don't become attached to it and lost in the content of it and believe it to be an accurate and absolute, an accurate and um, representation of what's happening. Always understanding through direct experience that we create the experience of the present moment from this process of uh, creating conceptual reality. And it's our version of things. It's not actually what's happening. It's what it means to us based on the hierarchy of sensing experiences, a hierarchy of, of values that we place on different experiences and how we pluck them out and, and create this process. So in the beginning, we work with an easy person so that we can uh, come up with the, the, uh, an experience of loving kindness as a mind state. But the real skill in practicing in this way is that you have agency in recognizing all mind states that are present and then you can evaluate in the moment as it's happening whether the mind state that's there is uh, beneficial or afflictive and that you have agency then to change from an afflictive mind state to a beneficial mind state. Uh, Metamind is a good uh, uh, possibility but you could also use compassion or sympathetic joy or equanimity or um, I also um, like um, people to sensitize themselves to their attachment mind state so that they can see when the, that's active any of these mind states is going to be distorting um, on the Vipassana side of things, of course, we want to go into this completely uh, equanimous place where there's nothing, there's no mind state really filtering the process of examining uh, ultimate reality as it's created into conceptual reality. But this is not true of the heart practices. Here, 
we want to intentionally incline the mind in a particular way, intentionally establish a mind state so that the, the process of creating conceptual reality is distorted by that mind state. So it isn't the uh, always the absence of that mind state or that distortion that comes, that's what what is the purpose of the practice. Uh, sometimes it is skillful to intentionally incline the mind that way. So in the beginning of the practice, of course, it's it's just figuring out all of these pieces and how to put them in place. And then as the practice uh, uh, matures, um, being able to do it with agency whenever you want to. And uh, the real uh, deep practice is then to be able to examine how holding a particular mindset changes the way that we create conceptual reality so that we can really understand the nature of distortion that so easily slips in uh, to that. So in metta jhana practice, uh, we place and sustain our attention on the object of meditation. We notice when the mind engages in the ob object of meditation and it intensifies. In the beginning, we're holding a mind state which is not uh, a physical object that you can really put your attention onto. So we're examining the nature of the sensing experience and whether it's neutral or inclined in one way or another. But as the mind engages that object, it intensifies and there's an energy that arises. PT is the Pali word for that. That you can place your attention onto. This is one of the ways into jhana. That uh, that shift from from uh, the uh, object of the mind state into the uh, object of the PT that arises around it um, that tends to activate the blissfulness that arises in the body, and then when the mind settles, it becomes one pointed, and you're in the first metta jhana. The thing about this is that the first metta jhana is very unstable, so you could enter it for a few seconds and be engaged in it, or 10 seconds or 20 seconds, and then pop out, and then have to go through the process again of setting it. Um, as the practice deepens, the, uh, the uh, length of time that you stay with all five of those elements uh, for jhana present the longer that happens, but at a certain point, uh, the mind will settle uh, so completely that there's no need any longer to uh, place and sustain attention, and you'll drop into a deeper level, which is the second metta jhana, and settle into the uh, PT, the uh, the in the rapture, the bliss, and the one pointedness. Um, at a certain point, as you settle in further, the, the, the energy quality becomes too coarse and you drop further into uh, the third metta jhana, which is simply the bliss and the one-pointedness that's associated with the practice. Um, and that you can sustain for quite long periods of time pretty easily once you get into it. Now, as a householder, in a householder practice, that may be harder to do, but this is something that you could also make part of your retreat practice so that you're engaged in, in that 
uh, aspect as well. It's also easy to overshoot uh, metta jhana and go into vipassana jhana. The bliss also will become too coarse and you'll slip out of the bliss into equanimity and you'll be in uh, vipassana jhana. Remember that the in metta jhana, the mind is always inclining toward kindness, but once the mind slips into equanimity, there's no inclination one way or the other. It's it's perfect balance, and so the, you lose the capacity at metta, and so that you have to back up into uh, the third jhana uh, if you do overshoot it. But it is in in practicing in this way pretty ordinary to do even in a householder practice of thirty minutes or an hour get into the first of the metta jhanas. Uh, I know with, with a number of students that uh, I work with, this is a pretty ordinary uh, experience. And then, as you're able to do that with, with a certain amount of agency, then the process of exploring how that affects things. Um, how does the world look? How do other people look? How does this person who's close to you look if you're constantly looking through this filter of loving-kindness at them. How do they become? If you can be in relationship to somebody and generate this steady flow of kindness toward them, then what they begin to experience in you is somebody who responds to them in a kind way very consistently. And that actually uh, is useful in, in reducing a lot of conflict that might arise in relationships because they feel that no matter how they come to you, the response is going to be one of kindness. The other piece about the metta practice just in general is that this is something that's useful in terms of maintaining as the practice if you're in actively engaging with someone. The Vipassana practices, uh, you can develop the skill to, to maintain them while you're engaged with other people, but because there's such an inward uh, uh, direction with the Vipassana side of practice, uh, and it tends to put you into a state of equanimity, people respond to that state of equanimity as if it's a coldness or a detachedness from you. Whereas because the metta mind state is warm or um, cool in the sense of no heat or desire or anger or control, but it's an openness, an, a warm, open-hearted curiosity. That's very inviting. Uh, it creates a sense of uh, safety in the relationship. Um, so uh, any questions about all of this before we begin the practice? Is that making sense? Why we would do it? Who it is we're doing it for, Jessica? Um, I had a question about uh, the mind state. Uh huh. If if you're generating the open, kind, and warm mind state of meta, however, on a somatic level, you're creating something else, um, perhaps something more afflicted. Um, I don't know. It's like I feel like I've experienced that before. And and what 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 do you do with that? Do you just continue with your foot? You you put the back with the afflicted body 
a somatic feeling in, in the background and, and focus on uh, continuing your your mind positive mind state focus of meta? You do, but also you can explore how viewing the afflictive emotional experience in the body changes holding the mindset of kindness toward it. We don't want to change anything that's happening in that way. We just want to be able to hold a mind state no matter what is happening and then view whatever is happening through that mindset and see how holding a particular mind state changes the way that, that is, that's experienced. Um, if you're holding the mind state of kindness, you're not holding the mind state of aversion, right? Or the mind state of craving for something else. And so you could be in the experience of what it is and also bring that, that loving kindness to it. The reason that I like the term curiosity for it is because it, it, it suggests an active state. I, I find the metta mind is an active uh, state of mind. So you're in an afflictive uh, emotional state and then the mind opens to a place of kind curiosity about why that might be happening. And so you can explore it from there on the Vipassana side. You could switch to Vipassana and then rock back and forth between Vipassana exploring why that might be happening and then coming back into the Metta side so that you can settle and, and, and hold the experience. Um, that's what I find so useful about it. One of the things um, on a Metta Vipassana retreat, for instance, where we do uh, two or three or four days of Metta first, um, um, people don't uh, hold themselves with such rigid criticism that you might expect or that often is the experience if you go on a, on a straight Vipassana retreat. I know from the teacher side of it, the first two or three days of interviews with people on a Vipassana retreat, people are really uh, 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 coming forward with the discomfort of the way that their mind holds them. Whereas if you do a few days of metta first, because you've taken to the place of holding yourself with this great kindness, that you can uh, view those states without identifying and, and suffering from them. Good enough? Good. Someone else? Okay, let's do some practice then. So how did that go? You all fell asleep. <laughs> You're all blissed out, so you can't talk.
Lexi? So sadness? Um, no, I think it's release. Ah. Is my guess. I mean, it's you know, yeah. I've just never meditated that intensely with that phrase mm. ever. It's always been a little more spacious, kind-hearted, but to 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 um, really give that kind of one-pointed energy. I don't know that I've ever done that. So good. So the tearfulness is um, uh, release of what? Oh, um, it's it's just for my spouse. It just ah. it's been, a, been about fifteen years of of a, you know just uh, working through stuff, really hard stuff sometimes. Mm -hmm. yeah. And recognize. I think there's just a recognition of just like wow, how it's been affecting him, and you know, just really wanting him to be peaceful. Wonderful, so really good. Sometimes in doing metta practice for people, it activates the attachment mechanism, and so um, sometimes that's experiences sadness. Um, uh, one of the reasons that that happens is because there's a uh, it activates um, a desire for connection, and then depending on what your experiences of over a, a lifetime, but particularly the early attachment experiences around connection, can often cause that uh, sadness response. So yeah, it doesn't feel like that we're actually really close, and this quarantine has made us closer. Yes, good. It's a really been kind of very easy but um, I think that whole just offering peace to somebody for some reason just I don't know it's just so intense so it's and like a sweetness I don't know it made me laugh it made me cry it was a good movie <laughs> good so, thank you uh-huh someone else Care to report? I'll, I'll go. Uh -huh. um, so I don't usually meditate at night, and so it was hard for me to ma maintain my focus. Mm -hmm. um, I've had a long work day, and I found my mind wandering around a lot. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. 
the thing about concentration and developing high concentration states is you don't ever get to a place where it's just that. It's always based on the conditions of the present moment. So sometimes you, it's easy and you can do it and sometimes you can't. One of the things about though practicing metta in this way, you practice consistently in this way and then there's a kind of a momentum that can develop uh, and pull you in. Um, so good yeah and I also noticed um, that what came up was uh, <clears throat> lots of different feelings besides peacefulness mm -hmm. like feelings of envy and uh, um, kind of aversion towards this person uh, yeah that's the trick of the close person so when you notice that you try and drop the mind state and then come push in the the mind state of kindness that's the piece of where you're developing the agency to be able to the buddha called it guarding your senses but to really be able to control what mind states you allow and what ones you don't and in the beginning without any real uh, uh, inquiry into this or effort into it you're just subject to whatever mind state comes in and so you can be subject to afflictive mind states and not really have much agency to do anything about it. And one of the advantages of this way of practicing is that you develop that capacity really to push in the mind state that you want and push out the one that you don't. Mm -hmm. I also wondered how much, I mean, obviously I was doing a little thinking. Um, I wondered how much the envy has to do with, you know, my attachment stuff you know regarding right. this person so so envy is uh, around um, material things and social position and jealousy is around personal relationships that's one way to parse it okay so um, it's more jealousy though yeah. um, jealousy is the the far enemy of joyfulness or sympathetic joyfulness and so it's a different practice when you notice jealousy arriving arising so when you develop all four of these pretty well and you notice the mind is jealous then you immediately move the mind state of sympathetic joy in to counteract the jealousy um, jealousy often occurs because of the attachment need being activated and needing proximity to the person and not being able to get it when you want it or feeling that you that it's at risk because they have relationships with other people that they might leave you for, um, and what happens around that, of course, is we begin to want to curtail their capacity to explore, uh, so that we can keep them, which then creates the friction in the relationship because if they they acquiesce and allow themselves to be confined and not explore, they'll resent you because they don't have the meaning that the exploration would bring to them. And so you become joyful for them succeeding in their exploration, even if it takes you away, it takes them away from you um, uh, and uh, uh, make um, agreements in the relationship if it's that kind of a relationship where you'll get the reassurance that you need that they're, they're going to be back. Um, really, because that's it's in some sense a request for reassurance from the other person that they're not 
of uh, uh, violating any agreements that they have with you and that they're not leaving. And if you can negotiate that in such a way that you actually do feel settled about it, the jealousy uh, is less uh, uh, challenging. Um, but that's that pushing in the joyful mind for them to do well in the things that really have meaning for them. So that that's the experience you have. And also, it's very useful in terms of the relationship because if you can fill yourself with the joyfulness, when they go explore, when they come back, you greet them with that joyfulness and interest about what they found out. And that's something that they really want to come back to. Not so much the, the jealous uh, probing criticism of what they were doing, which they don't want to come back to, so that also inhibits them from coming back. But the idea that when they do come back to you, they're, they're met with this joyfulness um, about um, them having gone and found something out, and then the interest of hearing about what it was that they, they, they discovered. Good. Thank you. Yeah, I can see how practicing these mind states could, you know, create a new, right. new approach. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Thank you. So there's a question I always do met in silence. Is there a benefit to saying the phrases out loud? Saying the phrases out loud would be a way of, of turbocharging the concentration if you're having a hard, a hard time concentrating in the moment. It engages a different part of the brain and, all, and also the, the audio receptors engages a different part of the brain. So more of the brain is occupied with the meditation and there's less um, room in it for uh, other acti activations to distract you from it. So it's, it's totally fine to do it out loud. The uh, metaphor, easy person for self, for close person, for friends and family, for neutral people, for difficult people are all an inward focused practice. And then a metaphor all sentient beings is an expansive, outwardly directed, eyes open, typically practice. So if you find that the concentration is really poor and you can't do the inward one pointedness so much, Hold the mind. See if you can hold the mindset of, uh, uh, of, of me, hold meta mind, and then open the eyes and practice in an outward directed way because the the engagement of external sight space takes up a lot of energy, which is tends to be experienced as energizing for the practice. Someone else about what we just did or opening it up to something else so um, then I'll talk a little bit about what's coming up on Saturday we're doing the, the third day of the level one meditation and attachment uh, training. Uh, you're welcome to come even if you haven't done the other two. The, uh, the uh, other two have been uh, recorded and are available to listen to. Um, and then um, a week from Saturday, I'm doing a meditation and attachment for relationships, which is a, a day uh, on talking about the dynamics of con collaborative, secure 
fun functioning relationships so you can have a, a good understanding of the underpinnings of that uh, and then we'll do some practice around that um, I do have a level two class starting uh, at the end of May, this is a, a, a more a deeper dive into the meditation and attachment stuff. Um, and um, it includes an introduction to the ideal parent figure protocol, which is um, in the terms of the attachment work, we talk about a three pillars approach. The first pillar is the ideal parent figure protocol, which is meant to to adjust the working model of uh, self and also the to adjust the working model of other people through uh, adjusting uh, or creating these ideal parent figures, uh, uh, working models of them so that you have a reference for that. The second pillar is the mentalizing or metacognition pillar. So training the mind to monitor the processes of the, the body mind and so that you have agency in, in, in uh, moving yourself out of afflictive states into beneficial states and then the third aspect is the uh, meta, the psychoeducation around attachment and how to work with it through meditation. We have uh, decided not to do the summer retreat in person uh, at Seven Circles. We're going to do it virtually. And we've opened the registration and we've changed it from a 10-day retreat to a 5-day retreat. So we'll have a, a, a virtual retreat, which will uh, be somewhat close in schedule and, and include uh, yoga. Um, and uh, the sign up for that is now uh, up on the website if you want to sign up for it. We are going to limit the number of people who come to it. So take a look at that. Um, and then uh, we are going to put on the calendar for uh, starting in July a series of daylongs uh, on uh, Dharma maps. So looking at the classic Theravada map for enlightenment and using the Mahasi Sayadaw Manual of Insight and the techniques and strategies in there and uh, apply them to the, to the um, process of insight. One of the things about coming to, to deepening your practice is I've been talking about these insights um, in a way, um, um, but not as, as deeply as you can go in a, in a series of day-longs, so that if that approach is appealing to you, uh, coming up uh, soon we'll have the opportunity to go uh, much deeper and, and sit for uh, the whole day with uh, working through the various insights and I think that that can be useful. Uh, I do offer the class on a Donna basis. Donna is the Pali word for generosity. Uh, if you would like to contribute to Metagroup or to myself and support us so that we can continue with our uh, teaching activities, you can go to the website where the sign up for the classes or the link for the classes, and there's a link for um, making a donation. It's really appreciated, whatever you can do. Um, anything else uh, anybody want to say? So then thank you all for coming. Really appreciate it. And we'll see you soon.